Welcome to episode 60 of The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests on this episode are Johnny Martin and David Gilbert. Johnny Martin is a writer, performance artist, and media guru here in Los Angeles. You know, when I would make art, you know, you make the art and then um, nobody buys it. And then when you write, you tell them what you're going to make and they tell you they're going to pay you for it and then you make it, which uh, is a much more comforting dynamic for me at least. David Gilbert is an artist who works in photography, installation, sculpture, and performance. It's, it's weird, like you start making things and you're bad at it and there's only a limited amount of time that you can be bad at something. So the sculptures have started to kind of cohere a little bit. Like whenever I start making work, I'm like, I'm gonna make sculptures, I'm gonna make paintings. And then I eventually pull out my camera and then I make photographs. Later on in the show, we're gonna hear music from Minneapolis band, The Stonedist. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. Johnny Martin and David Gilbert, welcome to The People. Yeah, thanks for being on, guys. Thanks for being on. Thanks Thanks for having us. Yeah. So, uh, Johnny, you've got a new book, uh, Johnny Jungle Guts, Collected Writings, uh, Life, Sex, Fandom. Do you want to tell us about the book? I sure do. Uh, This isn't just a new book. This is my first book. Um, and, uh, it was put out by Closing Press. David was an editor on the book and, um, it basically is three different intersections, three different topics that cross over, which is, uh, wildlife conservation, the first one and animals. The second one is, uh, fandom and fan cultures around video games and comic books. And then the third one is, uh, gay sex. And that's, those are sort of the three big quadrants that we're dealing with in this book of collected writings well the the second two don't really surprise me at all the first one i that comes as a little bit of a surprise to me what what's up with the animal conservation oh uh yeah i've got a big uh background in wildlife conservation i did projects in uh bolivia with a mountain lion and a monkey which is monkeys many many monkeys detailed in this book and then um also, I've done projects with wolves in Idaho on a wildlife sanctuary. Uh, I did a thing in uh, the Bahamas with uh, dolphins and uh, dolphin tracking systems. So yeah, I've done a lot of different stuff whoa, with wildlife. Whoa, 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 what, dude? <laughs> I know, I know you all right. I, I had no idea. What do you What do you mean? What 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 kind of role did you play in these in these things? What were they? Oh well, it was very different from uh, location to location. Uh, with the monkeys, it was a lot of hands-on care. And with the dolphins, it was uh, more like uh, research and monitoring the wild populations. And then with the wolves, it was hands-on care, but also community outreach to try to get um, that specific area of Idaho more wolf-friendly. I don't know if you know about the attitudes towards wolves in that particular part of the country, but you sort of have to be in the closet as a wolf lover over there because people get very angry and very assertive with you when you tell them that you're actually helping keep wolves alive. Because it's Uh, a cattle, it's a livestock issue. It's a livestock issue and it's a uh, hunting industry issue uh, as well, is the two main uh, industries that are affected by uh, the re-release of wolves in America. Yeah. 
And you did a, a video, almost like a music video uh, for the wolves out there, right? That's, That's right, it. I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, I, I was amazed by all the shots of wolves in the background. And I assume they were wild? I... No, no, no. Well, no. Those wolves were, well, they're wild animals, but they are living in a, you know, domestic, hand-fed hand environment. Um, and uh, those wolves, they're doing uh, crazy stuff with wolves out there. One of the wolves in that video, who you can see jumping off a small waterfall, yeah, actually prior to that video had such extreme back pain that she couldn't actually walk. And they brought in a Reiki healer and laid the wolf on a massage table. And through the art of Reiki, which I know not that much about, they managed to heal this wolf's uh, entire spine. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, uh, that's that's a taste of some of my interest in wildlife. And a lot of it's uh, a lot of it's in there. Okay, so all right, now I now I've got it. So moving on to the other stuff, fandom and David, hop in anytime sure. you want because yeah, you because yeah. you, you also had a hand in this book. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, tell us what you did with the book. Oh, sure. So closing is uh, we do a semi-occasional kind of events and publications and editions here in LA, and we've put on a play, we've done some performance series, and uh, we've made some zines. We did a joint that uh, was filled with herbs that are testosterone inhibiting. And so we launched that with, uh, we hotboxed a van in the Vaughn's parking lot. Um, So we kind of, we come up with, or we don't come up with, but we kind of think of artists that we'd like to work with and think of a way of having them come up with something that is kind of special or interesting and then try to launch it in a way that kind of is also interesting and special and um, uh, so Johnny's book, I think, came through John Bertle originally. That's right. This book was not my idea at all. I was approached to do this book by John Bertle and Sarah Williams. Uh, you might know Sarah Williams from the Women's Center of Creative Work. You might know John Bertle from his programming work at Human Resources and projects like the Eternal Telethon. You might know them both being former guests on this. Uh, of mm-hmm. the people. There you go. They've been yeah. on the show. And um, they just came to me and they said, uh, you know, you have a lot of writing. What if you published a book of all your writing? And I had never uh, thought of myself as a writer up until that point. Uh, But I said, sure, let's do it. And sure enough, over the course of working on this book, I became a professional writer outside of this these works. I was started freelancing and doing some journalism for like LA Weekly and Waypoint and a couple different places. Was it the book, the idea that kind of got you the the idea that you could get some work doing the writing? Maybe. Maybe that had something to do with it. I mean, it definitely gave me a little bit of a security to go in and start feeling comfortable pitching ideas to people. I remember the first thing I got published was for Waypoint, which is a gaming uh, website. Really, really smart games criticism on there. And I just came up with this... Uh, list of 10 hot dads in video games and <laughs> a great um, list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and thought it was funny and just passed it along to one of the editors over there and uh, they liked it enough that they published it so that was kind of really what started that because I really like writing you know when I would make art you know you make the art 
and then um, nobody buys it. And then when you write, you tell them what you're going to make and they tell you they're going to pay you for it and then you make it, which uh, <laughs> is a much more comforting dynamic for me at least. So, uh, yeah. And so we should probably mention that you're, you're a CalArts graduate. I am a CalArts graduate. Yeah. It's not a surprising thing for someone coming from a school like CalArts where it's like you, you kind of have license to do whatever you want. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. In a critique class in the art program, sometimes I would just read poems or something like that. Right. I started a coven at CalArts. Like, you just, you can do whatever you want and just call it art over there. Right. So, well, how was it pulling together all this writing um, for the book? Just kind of, it seemed like you were, some of these things were published on Facebook or other places <laughs> yeah. previously, right? So, how was that? Just kind of deciding what might go into the book. And David, you can I jump might, in here. Yeah, I might jump in here because I, I think this is one of the things that kind of drew us to the book it, or to the idea of this book was that it was kind of in some ways non-traditional, like that, I don't know, looking at the collection of Johnny's writings, it was a lot of writing that really good examples of writing that we kind of do a lot, like writing on Facebook or sending texts or these kind of more like everyday writings and then combining that with, things that you had published in zines and poems and that there was this kind of combination and pulling from kind of like high low sources that I think was really kind of like exciting and kind of makes the book really dynamic in the way that you read it because some things are you know like almost read like a tweet and then some things are a little more in depth and kind of have a little more yeah sub substance in their length I think also going back through this book especially now because some of this writing is almost like seven years old. It's kind of intense to see the person you were maybe back then, not so much from just this perspective of, oh, my writing is a lot stronger now, which maybe it is, but more just to see how little I felt like I cared what other people thought, uh, even just three plus years ago. Um, And it's... uh, through the process of doing this book, it's kind of been interesting to try to get back to that point of not caring. Do you think you care more now? Oh, I care so much more what people think now. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I censor myself in ex- extreme, uh, extreme ways, and uh, and think about it all the time in my writing. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's. Um, Maybe it's more of just an awareness of having worked in media and seeing like people write these articles where they just write something a certain way or write something just a little bit wrong. And then everyone on Twitter is like suddenly like down their throats about it. I think that's really the biggest reason why. Um, And I think that's a really dumb reason to, uh, to, um, to censor censor yourself. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I think it's important to approach work making with uh, sensitivity, but I also think that if you are trying to discourse proof your work, that's just sort of embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big thing now. It's like this, we live in a call out culture, I think, where, and in some ways that's really great that people are kind of maybe a little bit uh, afraid to offend people and will not say offensive stuff. But sometimes you need to actually like have a conversation so that you can kind of like, like if someone is young and says something that they and they don't have much experience with something, it's important to like say to that person like, oh, actually, like that's insensitive rather than Banishing just being them from the yeah, internet. just being yeah, like, you yeah. idiot, why would you ever say right. that? And it's like, well, because they're eighteen, like that's yeah. why they would say something that they just hadn't thought about very much. And like it, it, but it's kind of yeah. 
And that's probably why I said some of the things I said in this book because I was in my early 20s. And you probably some of it. Yeah, you probably didn't think it was going to go into a book. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then was it equally like you're was talking it? about like trying to get back to the place you were with the earlier work of like not caring as much. But then is it by that same measure, is it harder to like put that stuff in the book? Yeah, when you're like, putting it in a book, it seems more like like you're on record for yeah. real. Yeah, like a different mm-hmm. format, a different kind of because that sounds yeah. terrifying. Like I can't imagine like talking about or even looking about it, looking at or thinking about my old work from that long ago. Like it's a pretty serious thing to put like your old stuff in there. I mean, it is, but it's also almost less serious than for me putting it on the internet. <laughs> There's yeah. only 300 copies of this book. <laughs> right. Uh, it's not actually even easy for just anyone to read it. They'd almost have to buy it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas the internet uh, is available for anyone with access to a computer. Right. And, and they can comment on it. Mm-hmm. And, right. Yeah. I have a similar experience, I think, also, or maybe a corollary experience with like art showing is that whenever I've had an art show and I've had work up on the walls I feel like I'm showing like dirty underwear or something and I'm like oh god this is why am I doing this this is so revealing and I don't think other people see it that way but when I see it it, the work always just because it's it's in the past because I made it obviously before the show opened and so it's like oh god this is so humiliating to be so exposed in some way and i i don't know maybe that's just a part of art making or oh for sure it's always more opaque to to viewers than you think it is yeah Yeah. so let's also talk about uh fandom because your work uh as an artist also has a lot to do with that with your obsession over pokemon um Mm -hmm. and some of the some of the shows you've done around that um, it's definitely so, what I'm best known for in art, I think, yeah. is drawing every Pokemon. Yes. Yeah. Managed to get an Art in America doing that. <laughs> uh, who would think? But, um, well, that kind of came out of a residency I did at the Hammer Museum with Keichung Radio. And uh, I had an event at the Hammer where uh, I, it was a Pokemon panel where we talked about Pokemon because I'd always liked video games and comic books and incorporated that into my work at different times and uh i did that event and a lot of people showed up and people telling me stuff like oh you know i um took three buses and slept in my brother's house last night just to come to this (laughs) pokemon panel and i was just like wow like i never made something that was this important to people and uh yeah and so it just snowballed into Drawing all the Pokemon, which connects kind of to my wildlife work in terms of my interest in wilderness and and the way we classify uh, nature and because um, it's a taxonomy. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And, and the drawings are really great too. Um, I don't know. I saw a bunch of images online of like them installed, you know, in human resources and also elsewhere. I think. Oh yeah. Um, Ten other places. Probably. Yeah. But I mean, individually, they actually render Pokemon quite, quite well. And I get the sense that you kind of had to make them pretty quickly. Yeah. You didn't have like three years to draw all the Pokemon or something. Mm-mm. Yeah. No. I mean, it was just, it was just this idea that popped into my head out of an obsession to just feel closer with that work and just the sheer joy of doing it. But uh, then I think the presentation of seeing, you know, 700 drawings floor to ceiling in a huge room had kind of an effect on people yeah i feel like we're dancing around a question that maybe is too obvious to ask nerd culture art culture 
Yeah. I mean, I just love it when those two things are happening together, you know, when people who are more into video games and stuff like that are confronted with people who are from the art world. And that was sort of what the project was all about, even more than the drawings. The drawings were just a tool to create that bizarre social interaction where these two groups of people had to sort of stare each other in the face. We um, had a tournament at the Getty Museum that like 200 people showed up to in the Getty Garden. And that was just like totally over the top. I think the release of um, Pokemon Go really changed my relationship to a lot of that work because I was really just doing what Pokemon Go does, but like in like a weird guerrilla style, mm -hmm. um, just through social media and on Facebook and just creating this like little mini community. Well, why do you think, um, and David, jump in, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this as well. Like, why do you think that that sort of work is at this moment is allowed, would be allowed in the Getty or allowed in the Hammer? Like, Oh, it wasn't allowed in the Getty. It was totally... It was, uh, you did it in a gorilla, right? You yeah. just kind of put out a call. Yeah. It was weird because it was constantly oscillating between the thing at the Hammer Museum, which was totally allowed, and the stuff at the Getty and LACMA, which was not. I was just like operating on these two levels, which I don't think most people would al allow themselves to operate on, which was like being institutionally engaged, but also sometimes just not engaging with the institution at all. And when I say allowed, I, right. I know what you're saying, but maybe what I'm talking about is like a bigger idea of like, you did that and no one was like, what the fuck? Well, I'm sure some people were, well, but like no. in general. Yeah. Like, because, um, it helped them make money for parking. So they were just happy to get people there. And I was excited to get people there too, because a lot of people would say stuff to me like, you know, I've never been to an art museum. I, I don't really think that's for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but now that I'm here, like this is a really cool spot. Maybe, you know, maybe I could connect with art a little more. And I think art is really intimidating to people. And that was one of the things that disturbed me the most through the whole process was, you know, the first couple ones I did, I was like, wow, there's a lot of Latino people who like Pokemon what is this fan base about and then I slowly realized no it's not that there's a lot of Latino people who like Pokemon it's that we live in Los Angeles most of the people who live here are Latino but the art world is not mostly Latino mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm going to these openings and seeing a large white audience because this work is not accessible to uh, um, uh, the general public and hasn't been sort of offered to the general public in an accessible way. So that was one of the biggest eye-opening experiences of it was the racial dynamics that sort of arose where, you know, these majority Asian and Latino groups were showing up to these um, museums, some of them for the first time. You're listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. You can find The People on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or just about anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find The People at insertblancpress.net. Click on The People at the top of the page. And when you're there, you can find this and all other past episodes of The People for free. Uh, and if you go to iTunes uh, or anywhere else that gives you the opportunity... You uh, should rate us and review the show. Yeah, do us a favor. It really helps us out. Now let's get back to our conversation with Johnny Martin and David Gilbert. So, David, I wanted to uh, talk about your work a little bit because uh, when I was first getting familiar with 
your work, I described you to someone as a sculptor, and someone else said, no, 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 he's a photographer. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized that the way you were presenting uh, a lot of the sort of installation you were doing was through photographs. Yeah. Um, so I think that comes out of kind of two different impulses or re for two different reasons. Uh, I was going to grad school at UC Riverside kind of a, at the time. And I think because I was out there and I was not really in the middle of like an art city, a lot of the way that I would look at work was on the internet. And so I kind of began thinking a lot about work and how it was kind of circulated as pictures rather than seeing it in person and that even if you if you made a sculpture and most people would see it through a fixed point of view of a camera and a documentation and a documentary shot and I kind of began thinking of that and kind of wanting like what if you made that the work and then also I never trained as a sculptor I had no background so all my sculptures like would always fall apart and kind of and it became this kind of practical thing that the work was really ephemeral and that there was this way of kind of capturing these sculptures kind of like mid in their growth like either as I was making them or as they were and then kind of all these kind of things started kind of evolving out of that that the the sculptures could kind of reappear in multiple pieces and multiple photos that they could kind of like build and grow and then decay and fall apart and that you would kind of like I kind of think of them as kind of like living things that kind of have a lifespan of some sort. And let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the recurring imagery and some of the materials that you keep coming back to in your photos. Yeah, uh, uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I use a lot of cloth and fabric, I think, for this reason that I like. I use a lot of my old clothes and things like things that have kind of this both personal element to them and then kind of also reference like a kind of like bodily slumpy thing and there's this kind of absence of people it's a still life and but and then also that the the photograph tends to freeze these fabrics in a way where you take something soft and that could be ever changeable and it kind of especially in the way that I photograph and kind of like intense lighting becomes kind of looks like stone or something. And I like that kind of uh, ability of photography to change something to make it kind of more solid. And you say absence of people, but I think I remember yeah. some photos that included you in them. Oh yeah, that's and true. Maybe nude actually. Yeah. 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 I was, I, that was a period of time where I kind of like, I thought a lot about being like a, as I was in grad school and like, a little bit maybe more removed I thought a lot about being kind of like a romantic artist and so it was kind of this like I this idea of being like a kind of like primitive in the studio and I would get naked and take these photos that were like kind of half set up kind of half joke and half like actually me working in the studio and I thought like I tried them with clothes on but it, I, I always find that like the signifiers of like jeans or a certain kind of t-shirt it was too specific in terms of an era so like the only way to go is naked mm -hmm. and you also do a live performance you did a performance at the eternal telethon oh, yeah. that i could only sort of describe as live collage in a way do you want to describe some of the images that were in that oh yeah i, I took all these different kind of components like i had uh 
like a cut out of a huge flower, uh, flower and a curtain that I had cut out. And they were kind of these pieces, kind of collage-like, but photographed. And um, I put them up kind of like one by one and made a kind of vignette and read some poems in between. And then the last thing that I put up was like a giant picture of my face. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of like reading these poems in front of a picture of myself. And there was this kind of like collapsing. And I kind of like, I mean, I, I think I think really photographically. So I kind of knew that if you were to photograph that scene, it would kind of collapse into like, oh, there's a guy in a pic, like, and then his face is behind him. And there's this kind of scene of flowers and curtains and things as well. So you're going to continue to like kind of intentionally avoid the discrete object or is that something that you're interested in getting into? Um, and if so, why? And if not, why not? I mean, it's a, I feel like I'm at this kind of weird point where I, whenever I start making work, I'm like, I'm going to make sculptures, I'm going to make paintings. And then I eventually pull out my camera and then I make photographs. And, but like at a certain, like it's been a few years now. And like, I kind of like, I can't really like fool myself anymore. Like, I'm like, Oh, these are going to wind up being photographs. And that's kind of where I'm at right now is like, well, so now what do I do? Like, if I know it's going to be a photograph, it doesn't feel as genuine to kind of like make these things and then photograph them. Cause I always made them being like, Oh, it's going to be a sculpture. And then it would kind of fail. And I think there was this kind of like failure in some of the work of like, oh, the sculpture can't quite stand up. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. And I I liked that part of it, the kind of like humor and like maybe pathos of like a falling apart sculpture, but but to like manufacture it with the knowledge that it's going to be a photograph. I, I don't know whether that's so different maybe from someone looking at the work, but for me, it feels a little bit more disingenuous. Like it was a genuine attempt at first to make sculpture that totally bombed but now so, so, so I'm, I don't know I'm kind of figuring out what's next well it weirdly has like more of a life as a photograph yeah. right I mean like because that's where everyone's most people are going to view your work yeah um, and so a discrete object is is not as uh, doesn't I can't think of the word uh, doesn't have the longevity of of the photograph right so it's like less ephemeral almost yeah definitely and it's also it 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 did a few things that kind of like solved like oh i could never move these objects because they'll fall apart further and it also was i kind of realized i was like maybe a little more controlling than i thought i was originally and the photograph really does kind of frame everything and make it kind of a neat object in a way right and you have made some like figures it seemed like these uh I mean, almost like characters, like, uh, I can't remember, like, um, this was related to the Finley show, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah, but, Baby uh, Girl. Baby Girl, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the the figures look, at least the images of them, look as if they could travel. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm it's, it's weird, like, you start making things and you're bad at it and there's only a limited amount of time that you can be bad at something. So the sculptures have started to kind of cohere a little bit, like whether I like it or not, like I'm like, Oh, I know how to use plaster a little more. Like the things aren't quite falling apart, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested in portraiture. I love portraits. So I'd like to make objects that kind of have this ridiculous kind of like gesture or kind of like that you kind of associate them with some sort of personality, but, I kind of like it that you don't know exactly where that's coming from. Yeah. 
And uh, in some of your live performance, you use music. I saw a performance you did with Paul Pescador where you used that uh, clip from the Judy Garland show where oh, yeah. Judy sings with Barbara. Yeah. Do you want to talk about why you chose that? Yeah. Um, at the time, Paul and I were in a relationship and boyfriends. And it's like this amazing, the clip that Johnny's talking about is this amazing clip where Barbara Streisand is like the young ingenue and has this amazing voice. And Judy also has an amazing voice, but she is further along in her career. And her voice is more like cracking and it's, it's been, she's been through it at this point. And so they sing this duet together uh, and we, and Paul and I called the piece duets and I think it, the piece was a lot, it was kind of, we made it right as our relationship was ending. And it was a lot about kind of being in a, two artists in a relationship together and competition and kind of like what various issues that come up with that dynamic. And so we found, and so kind of like when we watch this video, it's this like an ingenue coming up and who's Barbara and Judy singing as well. And they sing together and it's so beautiful, but there is this kind of like, they have this like really weird banter. They they openly are jealous of each other in yeah. the beginning of the clip. Yeah, and it's both like really scripted, but also like, uh. yeah, there's like a little bit of uncomfortable quality to it. And so I think we kind of saw them as sort of like maybe alter egos or some sort of alter ego to to put ourselves against. Yeah. yeah. And you also did a uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor movie series am i right oh yeah uh yeah so i i i've been i think it kind of relates to your work too is like this idea of fandom yeah and um mine kind of extends a little bit more towards like old movie stars and especially like kind of like gay icons um so yeah i i I got really into elizabeth taylor one year and uh was really into her life and her role like throughout the aids era as a big advocate and this kind of huge person um, who I found, like, when I started talking to kind of gay guys my age, they didn't know anything about no. for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, can you, and I just learned about this, I think, within the past year, mm-hmm. which, because I've been a big Elizabeth Taylor fan for, since I was three. Wow. Um, but to, why don't you tell the listeners about her relationship to the AIDS crisis? Uh, sure. So Elizabeth Taylor, like, was supposedly always surrounded by gay men and loved gay men, and her best friend was Montgomery Clift. And um, when the AIDS crisis hit, she was, like, basically the first person, this was during the Reagan era, when no one was ever talking about, it was a gay disease and no one was talking about it. And she was really, really vocal about, she was the first kind of celebrity and person who was in the limelight to talk about AIDS as a major health crisis, and she forced Reagan and then Bush and then Clinton to all make it a priority. And she kind of had the cloud and the celebrity to do so and raised tons of money. And there's still an Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. She appeared on the cover of, I think it's Vanity Fair, holding a condom, saying that she got tested regularly for AIDS and HIV. And just she was just kind of this no bullshit she really spoke her mind mm-hmm. person. Johnny, I don't know if you have Elizabeth Taylor things to add. I mean, I just remember the diamond commercials from my childhood <laughs> yeah. were so extravagant <laughs> with Burt Reynolds. That was just so fabulous. And then, of course, she did, I remember when she did uh, These Old Broads with Demi, Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. When I watched that as a kid, I was like, this is just like a boring movie about old ladies. But what I didn't understand was that, of course, Elizabeth Taylor 
famously stole Debbie Reynolds' husband, Eddie Fisher. And so then for them to go on and make this movie together was kind of like a big deal and a cathartic thing when uh, this sort of man had put all this distance between them for the past, you know, 40 years or however long it had been. But uh, no, I love Elizabeth Taylor. Um, And I love Barbara. So I love to see uh, that in that performance. And... I'm fascinated by this new reveal of Barbara cloning her dogs. dogs. Twice. Twice, yeah. She cloned her dogs twice. I mean, I watched her new Netflix special, and I was just amazed by the five-minute montage at the end completely dedicated to her dog. Like, that really takes a certain degree of ego to be like, okay, we're on Netflix, and we're just going to take five minutes just to do this because this is important. I think it's important for everyone out there to know that I had a dog and – that was a good dog. And I really wish that my dead dogs will be on Netflix someday. That's what oh, I hope Butters. for. He'll, he'll live forever. Yeah. I'm not going to clone him. Oh. No? <laughs> I'm going to try something new next. <laughs> After Butter Jelly or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we could clone Butter's brain into like a beautiful Afghan hound or something. <laughs> uh, um, Butter's is Johnny's adorable dog for yeah. the listeners. Yes. Um, I heard an amazing Barbara Streisand story that she has this area in her house. I don't know if this is true, but I I love the story, so it doesn't matter. Um, But where she takes her clothes and then she has fake stores, like in the basement of her house. Like there's Uh like a Mm -hmm. Gucci store and a Prada store. And she hangs the clothes in these fake stores. And then a favorite activity of hers is to go shopping, (laughs) where she just goes and picks out clothes that she already owns but that is like just an act it's an activity yeah there's a lot of different layers to that urban legend like how extreme it is like you know you hear versions of it where she has a starbucks in her basement that like someone works at Mm -hmm. or then you just hear like oh she just has a closet that's separated out by like designer yeah so who really knows i don't i don't know the true story and that's not revealed i haven't watched the netflix special yet it's not revealed it's not that's not Uh, revealed there no no it's not and when you get to a level of fandom for uh for babs or for elizabeth taylor or for whatever like those sort of stories like like david you kind of said like you know if they're true or not but doesn't really matter yeah at at a certain point of fandom right well, it's weird. I, when I was doing the Elizabeth Taylor research, I like read the stuff about her, and there was this thing that she ran a drug, like a, a AIDS and HIV drug clinic, out of her house, mm-hmm. and that's totally not true. And it's weird. <laughs> it's like it. I know it's it's cool, but I also but I don't know for some reason like Barbara Streisand having some crazy fantasy shopping dungeon is cool and like <laughs> i don't really care if it's true or false but i do but, think that like in the history of like aids research and like medication it's kind of more it's like that truth is slightly more important right. oh yeah. yeah yeah and so like and someone it's like it's just it's also like a weirdness of the internet like someone said that once and that has just been posted on all these things and but then when you go down to it like all these doctors and stuff were like no there's no way that like elizabeth taylor with her high profileness could have been like giving away drugs that were illegal <laughs> and like she wouldn't have done it like she okay, wouldn't yeah have... sure when you say it out loud yeah, <laughs> yeah right sense, well but yeah. it, it makes sense but it's also like it's also like a wonder like it's just something that you're like oh yeah that's awesome like i want to believe that she did that but i don't know 
I mean, it's sort of like an extreme version of, I think, what I've seen photos of her doing, which is working in uh, vans where they did uh, AIDS and HIV testing, I believe. Right, which is true. Which yeah. is yeah. true. Really that did happen. Yeah. yeah, totally. Which is not giving out drugs from your home, but yeah. uh, is, like, similar to that. Yeah. Um, but it's her being active in, like, in the midst of this crisis where it was literally, like, not acknowledged or, like, spoken of yeah, Ronald in, Reagan never in the said government. Word, yeah. 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 And, yeah, and I think there was a lot of fear of also just being, especially in the early days of, like, being in contact with, because you, they didn't know exactly how it spread. Mm-hmm, and so yeah. she was considered very brave in this way of being in con- close right, contact. Right, when people with... were getting fired from waiting jobs because exactly. they were HIV positive or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, favorite... Um, you know, if we're going to talk about celebrities and AIDS, my absolute favorite thing that a celebrity has ever done related to the AIDS crisis was Tammy Faye uh, Mesner, then Baker, Tammy Faye Baker, had a show on the Christian cable television channel. And, you know, this is sort of the belly of the beast here. TBN. This is, this yeah. is, it was TBN, yeah. and it's, you know, Christian audience, very Christian demographic, and she... Um, you know, so not gay friendly. A lot of people on that <laughs> side, including possibly her own husband, saying things like, oh, this is like the disease that God has, you know, given these people for their sin. And so Tammy had a guy who was, you know, he had, he was, he had AIDS and um, she had him uh, video f- into her show for like a good, I think it was a half hour segment or something like that. And, you know, basically just saying, like, any good Christian would go up and give him a hug if they were a real Christian and um, and and just asking him questions about his diagnosis and the gay community and the things that he'd been through, like, you know, going to someone's house. And every time he would take a drink from his glass, the, the host would take his um, glass, go into the kitchen, and then wipe off the uh, edge of the glass where he had taken a drink from. So just, and you can hear in the studio audience that um, the applause is very tepid. Uh, mm-hmm. The people that are there were not ready to hear this message at all. And uh, I'm always just uh, astounded by that gesture of, of um, openness. D- did you just make me have some modicum of respect for Tammy Faye Baker? I think yeah. Tammy Faye Baker deserves a lot of respect. Jim Baker does not, but <laughs> I think Tammy Faye, especially in her later life, uh, really um, was gr- great and did something, some incredible stuff with with uh, bringing some tolerance to the Christian uh, scene, as it were. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. And you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and Overcast and and so many other places. Anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, and if you're anywhere where you can leave a rating and review, please do that. It really helps us out. Or if you just want to tell a friend about the podcast, if you think they might like it, that would be really helpful, too. That's, that's the best, yeah. So let's get back to our conversation with Johnny Martin and David Gilbert. All right, Johnny. I, I was I had a question about the book, and I kind of like didn't think about it until you were describing the Pokemon drawings, and then talking also about the working with wolves. And I was kind of thinking about animals and real or imagined. And then I was kind of wondering, this is a long winded way of saying, but like, how do you see the? Because th- you're 
it, your book really is kind of the, about these three subjects, animal life or life and, se- and gay sex and fandom. And how do you see those three things kind of linking together? Well, uh, they're, they're the three things I'm the most passionate about hmm. in my life, I think. So that's how they end up in my work. But I also think that I see in each of these things, I see the way the other two affect them and I see in them. Like, for example, with uh, wildlife conservation, I think my biggest inspiration to get into wildlife conservation was actually uh, video games. Uh, The video game Final Fantasy VII is about a group of eco-terrorists fighting the government to save the planet and positions them in the hero role in the game. So I think that had a really huge impact on me and just this idea of adventures in nature like you'd see in Pokemon or other Japanese role-playing games. And then, um, you know, with with the uh, gay sex side of it, you know, I see a lot of gay sexuality in fandom, specifically early superheroes and superhero material, um, like Superman, you know. No, it, no. Like if if you if Superman didn't exist in culture, if there was no precedent for Superman and we didn't all grow up with Superman and he wasn't the most normal American thing, and that didn't exist, and you saw someone walking down the street or flying through the air or moving through the world dressed in that costume, you would think something gay was going on. You, this is a man uh, with you know. red underpants on the outside of a blue spandex that sort of highlight his dick. Then he's got this incredibly glamorous cape that trails behind him for absolutely no reason. And that's the thing that I always am blown away by when people are like, uh, that red underwear doesn't make any sense. It's like, none of it makes any sense. (laughs) Nothing about this makes any sense. This is a, an alien man, uh, who looks exactly like a, a, a human, a white human living on earth. Surrounded by journalists. These people are journalists in this Daily Planet, and they can't tell that he's like yeah. nothing about this yeah. makes any sense at all. It's just this display of like American um, over the topness and, and, and uh, brashness and sexuality and everything. And that's what I really um, love about it. So, uh, so I see queerness in that. And then, of course, I see queerness in. Gay sex and animals. I mean, on that very first dolphin project, uh, the biggest eye-opener for me was being out on the water with these animals, and there was a dolphin that had all these ridges in his dorsal fin, which meant that he fought with sharks a lot. You know, there's these little jagged cuts, uh, which I thought was really cool. And um, uh, so anyway, it was my favorite dolphin, and he was having a not-so-private moment with... His lady friend on the side of the boat, and I was like, oh, you and your lady friend better get a room. And the other biologists were like, no, no, that's actually a, a male dolphin. Uh, male dolphins form lifelong same-sex pair bonds, and they have sex all the time. And I was just shocked by that because up until that point, this is when I was really young. I was like 18 or 19. I didn't even know that animals, you know, could be gay or, I mean, they're not gay, but homosexuality existed in nature. I just thought it was this weird, decadent human thing. And you come to realize there's this very rich genetic tradition of same-sex behavior in every facet of the animal kingdom. So, uh, and I really respect that about animals, that they live without shame, really. 
That's cool. I, I also like that you, I mean, going, you said a lot. So, but going back to you, uh, to like, I like that you kind of flip the script a little bit because I feel like often when people talk about video games, especially in like the news or current events, it's often as this thing that will make you really much less part of the outside world or the world at large. And like, I like that you talked about video games making you kind of like more into nature and more going out into the world. It's like, seems like a nice kind of flip. Yeah. Well, um, I think that people are starting to see video games in kind of richer and more nuanced ways. And I think game developers are starting to consider the possibility of games outside of just like, you know, simulations of shooting people you know yeah um that's constantly uh evolving conversation um yeah yeah I, I also think that there's like an when you were talking about superman 2 there's like an interesting i'm just gonna go through everything you talked about and <laughs> ask you more questions but i think also and maybe this kind of is there's a link between our work and this but like there's uh maybe an interest in like childhood ness oh, yeah. and, and sexuality i'm horrible like, at growing up yeah and like and like kind of seeing like i put a lot of like like weird stickers and like kind of try to find like these perverse things that people that are made for children in my work and i think that you're kind of talking about that too with like looking at Superman as, like, an early sexual fantasy or something. Or forget, I mean, Superman for sure, but also, I mean, Johnny, I know you and I share a love-hate relationship with uh, terrible 90s comics. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and there is, and I didn't realize this when I was 13 and 14, but there is nothing more gay than, uh, you know, Rob LaField uh, images of, like, well, ripped dudes. That's, like, the iconically bad... You right. know, people always talk about, oh, you know, uh, Wonder Woman's costume is so offensive, you know, uh, because it's so skimpy or whoever, you, whichever female superhero you want to touch on and talk about how there's an objectification issue going on. And that's a very fair conversation. But I think there's something lost when you forget that Spider-Man literally hangs upside down with his legs spread wide open like a stripper. <laughs> like that's his de facto pose. And everyone just pretends that there's nothing sexual about that. But because Wonder Woman's a girl, like we have to we have to put all this heat on her for for her fashion choices. He also shoots the white uh, goo out of, wrist, out of his wrist, etc. Well, maybe that's also like the gay gaze or something is that you're able to see that as like a gay guy, like that you're like, hey, like that's attractive to me. Yeah. Like in that, you know. Well, yep. there's an idea of like uh, uh, of like trying to model masculinity, which I which I think probably Rob LaField or this is a comic book artist or Jim Lee or whoever. Like I think they, they didn't think they were creating like sexy dudes that men would be attracted to. I think they thought they were like modeling like a version of masculinity. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Rob Liefeld, bless his heart. He'll never change his style. And he's, he's really, he's really the worst out there when it comes to comic book art. And I, I really admire him at this point for just soldiering on with these just insane, you know, pencil waists on these women with the huge boobs. And then, you know, the men's, even the men's boobs are huge. They've got these massive pecs that just jut out in these impossible ways. I don't know what's going on. And Rob Liefeld, uh, another crazy thing about Rob Liefeld is he used to be afraid to go to conventions because he thought 
that someone was going to show up dressed as Cable, but holding a real gun and shoot him. Oh. Cable was one of the characters he created and worked on. So yeah, there's there's a homoerotic element in, um, I think, throughout the entire history of superheroes. I don't find Rob Liefeld's drawings particularly sexy, but uh, but there's there's certainly a weird exaggeration going on there. Yeah. Did spandex get gayer or something like? Like why at first was like these skin tight things like not seen as as gay? Because they were the that... costumes that uh, circus performers, oh, acrobats, right. and wrestlers would wear, and it's like totally. uh, circus strongmen right, in right, the twenties right. and thirties. So that yeah. was yeah, the big early influence was wrestling, I right? Think. And so that that evolved into basically just in comic books anyway, just drawing a, a naked person and but color with a little line coloring in an area that would be. A item of clothing that they were wearing, yeah. you know, and it wasn't until I don't know what Johnny backed me uh, early aughts where they were like drawing seams in there and putting tread on. Yeah, the boots it starts or looking like ath- athletic wear a little bit more, and you see right. that in the current uh, spate of Marvel films is this this constant attempt to try to make this situation seem more realistic, which I just find so. Uh, sort of hopeless. It's hopeless, but it also like it doesn't really do the thing. It it doesn't. It doesn't desexualize these characters. It turns it them in from a naked person into like someone wearing bondage gear. You yeah, know? right. Yeah, yeah, wearing rubber. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's why I loved the Black Panther costume so much because it was so sort of glamorous in terms of this has this like sort of as a you know it's a necklace that turns into a costume. I thought that was so uh, fabulous. I just really loved that movie a lot. But I also just have a penchant for cat-themed characters pretty consistently. <laughs> so you were just telling me earlier that you were working on a show coming up in the fall. Yeah. And there's a new piece for the show that also involves Judy, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I'm doing this piece, and it involves... Oh, Johnny, this is so related to us. It involves Judy Garland, and I, I want to... I kind of am thinking about like a duality, and so there's one part Judy Garland and one part Anne Frank. Okay. And, and <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'd been kind of into both women separately, and then was kind of thinking about them as they're both they they had some interesting real similarities and then interesting differences. They're both have an interesting relationship to maybe tragedy or suffering, and I think they're both artists and. But they're both artists, but not artists as we, in a Picasso kind of way, mm-hmm. but artists in a way that are, that's to me kind of interesting. And Judy is obviously like lives, but then there are these huge differences. Judy lived out loud and was like a celebrity from when she was a child. And Anne Frank is much more private and was not a celebrity. And it's kind of like these kind of like more interior writing that was probably never meant to be published versus like this, like performing huge stadiums. And yeah, so I'm kind of like thinking about my relationship to these women and why I'm drawn to them and gay identity and Jewish identity and kind of trying to froth it all up into a piece. We'll we'll see how it turns out in the fall. And you made some Anne Frank postcards for a show uh, relatively recently, right? What was, what, what were those? What was that? Um, I was asked to be in the show, and it was a kind of funny context where it was like kind of like a store. It was kind of like a luxury store. But I was like, well, what would be a weird thing to put in a luxury goods store? And so I made a postcard rack where I made these Anne Frank postcards. And I thought there was this thing about kind of like publicity and 
putting this really private thing out and having that be a, a, like within the context of like fancy jewelry and stuff that I thought was kind of like nicely perverse. I can't help myself, but we're talking about fandom and you brought up Anne Frank. Yeah. Tell me what you think about the Justin Bieber thing. I know that's a couple of years ago. Wait, I don't know the Justin Bieber thing. He, Okay, so Justin Bieber went, uh, he went to the Anne Frank Museum. Yeah. And uh, there's a visitor's book, you know, uh-huh. and he signed, and don't quote me, mm-hmm. but he signed it something to the effect of like, I'm sure that Anne would have been a believer. <laughs> oh, Whoa, yeah, no, that's yeah. amazing. That's right. It's been a couple years. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I mean... I had no, that's so good. I mean, I don't even know how to respond. (laughs) (laughs) Justin Bieber also wore like an act up shirt. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like he wore this like, you know, act up is this like more underground AIDS organ, like AIDS activist group. And he wore it as like a fashion. And so I think he has like a weird relationship to uh, I mean, I don't know him, but I think he has maybe a weird relationship to like oppressed people. Well, I always trying think to about, explain. Yeah. I always think about that Larry David bit where he talks about like, you know, like the concentration camps, and you know, did people like get it on in concentration camps, and did people have crushes on each other in concentration camps? People were really offended by that, but I saw someone else make this really unique point, which was sort of that, like, you know, even though these people's lives were a horrible tragedy they were still human beings and so to put them on a certain pedestal where they're just sort of symbolic and uh sort of are removed from the full scope of being human is kind of more perverse than Mm -hmm. what larry david or sort of sounds like justin bieber were even really talking about like justin bieber obviously he had no filter to think through what he was saying but i think he was operating from that same weird place of being like yeah, Anne Frank had a tragic life, and she was an amazing hero in terms of her stalwart belief in the human um, uh, goodness. But also, you know, she might have liked my music. Well, and yeah. then, uh, if, if I remember right, the Anne Frank Museum, you know, every, there was a lot of people who were outraged about it, of course, on the Internet. Uh, the Anne Frank Museum responded with, uh, with like, yeah, sure, because she was a teenage girl, like totally. just like every other teenage yeah. girl. So. You know what? She totally would have been a fan of Justin Bieber if that was a, not in any way historically anachronistic or yeah. whatever. Well, and in her house, there's all this like, I mean, I think what's so cool about it and it kind of relates to art is like there's this kind of like teenage girl scrapbook quality on some of the walls where she's cut out pictures of movie stars. And so like him seeing that is not that crazy. Like right. it's like, it's a kind of like she's blogging on the wall. You know, it's like she is doing the equivalent in the 1930s as like or a, the, a the thing, same thing doing. we all did is put posters up of uh, totally. babes and hunks and whoever our yeah. heroes on our walls exactly you know? yeah. yeah uh well johnny david thank you so much thank you. Yeah, for being on the show thanks so much for having us yeah thanks for having us you've been listening to the people on kchung 1630 a.m i'm matthew timmons and i'm ben white remember to find us on itunes or stitcher or soundcloud or anywhere else you get your podcasts and Remember to leave us a rating and review if you can. That would be really great. And remember to go buy a copy of Johnny's book. Uh, It's really great. It's, again, it's called Johnny Jungle Guts, colon, Life, Sex, and Fandom. And you can get that uh, by going to closingstore.bigcartel.com. Yeah, find it there and get it. Get two, get three, get ten of them. And our interstitial music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. 
And we're going to go out with a song from Minneapolis band The Stonedist. And the name of the song is Big Struggle. Killer.
very early on when we first knew each other, we almost killed each other with our cars. Really? Do you don't remember that? No. I can't believe you blocked it out because we talked about it later. Oh, yeah. I do remember this. Yeah. yeah we yeah. were both driving. Uh, we yeah. were both taking lefts. I can't like... remember. If it's if I'm at fault, that's fine. But I definitely <laughs> remember that we I like almost got in this car accident and then didn't. Yeah. And then I looked and I saw and he was the driver. Yeah. And it was like someone I knew. Yeah. What were the odds of that? <laughs> I, I and remember... then we just kept driving.